As I said, my name is Joe Brehob, and I want to say good morning again. Um, if I say once upon a time, everybody should immediately kind of perk up because I think just about everybody likes a really good story, uh, and I do. I particularly like fairy tales. I like very traditional fairy tales because they tell us not how the world is, but how we wish the world was. Uh, there's always some sort of a wicked queen or evil king, and they're going to be introduced in Act 1, and they're going to be safely dead by Act 3, or, or in some way very severely punished that makes us feel very good. And whoever it is that they were persecuting, stable boy, um, some sort of a stepdaughter, they're always going to be sort of raised up by the end, and they're going to be either ruling benevolently or they're going to be in a place where they can live happily ever after with their true love. And all of that feels very good and right and sort of just and, and neat. Um, we love to see the oppressed lifted up, and we like to see the oppressors, especially the ones that are really, really bad, we like to see them crushed down you know, beneath our feet. Real life is obviously a little bit different. I actually see the world kind of in a... Uh, in a very different way. Um, you guys, some of you might see it the same way. For some of you, this might say, sound a little bit odd, but this is the way I see it. I see three groups. I see oppressors, right? These are the people that have power, and they use it in a way that's unfair or unjust. And when I think about, well, what, what creates this oppression? I think, well, step one, you have to give power to a person over other people. And then I kind of realized, well, there really is no step two, because as soon as you do that, it's, it's almost inevitable, with most people anyway, that you're going to start to get some oppressive behavior. And so that's why we see it so often uh, in some governments, in some elected officials, in some uh, police officers, in some teachers, in some parents. You know, I myself um, absolutely sometimes fall in that category, uh, sometimes. And then there's the, uh, the second group. And this second group I call the oppressed. And they're the ones that are kind of the, the, the victim of the first group. They're the ones that are powerless and they're burdened by this unjust authority or power. And kind of depending on the time of, or place, these could be slaves, these could be minorities, these could be immigrant workers. They could also just be the poor or homeless or children. Separate from those two groups, I see myself in this group I call ourselves. And I'm saying ourselves because I'm hoping at least one other person kind of sees it this way. That um, I, I've got those two groups out there, and then I've got, I've got my group. And what distinguishes my group is that while we are once in a while oppressed and, and, and in minor ways, like, you know, I have to deal with a cable company. And once in a while, we are oppressors, maybe to our children, maybe to coworkers. But it's always, you know, in our minds, justifiable or else it was unintentional, and it's nothing like, you know, the list of what these really bad oppressors do. So we kind of see ourselves in a different group. And there's times when we can even jump back and forth. A couple of years ago, we needed a dishwasher, the one that we had had broken. And I, you know, start looking everywhere to find the very best possible price on a dishwasher, because I'm not satisfied until I know that I pay the lowest price anyone has ever paid, you know, for a certain model. But with dishwashers, it's kind of like the price is the price. It might be 50 bucks less here or there, but it's kind of there's an established price. But I find this website that's called something like discount appliances delivered to your door when we feel like it.com type of a thing that I'd never heard of. And the reviews were like decidedly mixed, but the prices were really low. So I was like, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to believe this story because I really want to. And so I, you know, give them my credit card. 
by this dishwasher. And uh, they say, you know, it'll get there when it gets there. And so I wait, and it's because it's kind of like an overstock thing, so you kind of have to wait your turn. I don't get anything. I don't get any emails. I start to get a little anxious. Um, I start writing them, you know, emails that kind of escalate in sort of their um, sense of urgency. And all at once, a truck shows up, and it, it drops off a washer. And so we're like, okay, this is not so bad. We drag it inside because they're certainly not going to do it for us. And uh, I unwrap the shrink wrap, and it is the one I ordered. But they have not included instructions or hoses, clamps, none of those little special tools for those special little nuts that they put on there so no one can use it except for with their tool. None of that's included. So I am super angry. And I, um, you know, I do the, the, the most rational thing that you can do. I, I take it all out of my kids because um, in some way it's kind of their fault. And so it kind of sends them scurrying. And like for the next four hours, this is what I'm doing. You know, it's a 20-minute project, and it takes me four hours because I have to watch YouTube videos. I have to try to manufacture parts out of my toolbox. I'm pulling things off of my sump pump to make it work. And I'm sort of jerry-rigging this thing and getting it to work because I'm, it's impossible for me to wait uh, to get it done. And I even call the company, and I sort of lit this guy up, uh, letting him know how he was basically oppressing me, you know, and what he was doing. And I didn't give him much of a chance to respond. I hang up. I go to Beth. I've solved the problem, and I want her to see. And so she sees her dishwasher, you know, nice and neat. Everything's good. I open it up. to put. The, we're going to put the first load in. And inside, you know what we find? Instructions, hoses, clamps, special tools, all the things that you would need to do the job right. And so I realized, okay, I thought I was being oppressed, and it turned out I was kind of being a little oppressive to everybody around me during that. So, but other than those little kind of funny times, I don't think that I'm one of those first two groups. I, and I think some of us would agree, feel like we have too much power to really be oppressed in a really serious way. But we don't have enough power that we're ever oppressing others in a way that's really hurtful. And that is such a sweet spot place to be, right? You're kind of in that perfect balance. It's wonderful. And it also, in addition to relieving me of like sort of any you know, sense of needing to be involved, it makes me kind of distance myself when I see a struggle between the first two groups. So when I see things on the news, you know, years ago about Tiananmen Square or right up to today about ISIS or what's going on in Baltimore, it doesn't really matter how you see those issues for the point that I'm making. What I'm saying is I'm able to kind of take a couple of steps back from that, not to evaluate it, but just to step back because it's other people having other problems. And if everybody was like me or us, these problems probably wouldn't even exist. Um, so it sort of gives me license to do that. And I hope in each of those cases that whoever the innocent party is that's being oppressed, I hope that they get relief. It makes me happy when they do. And I hope that whoever the bad parties are in that, even if I can't figure it out, even when it's a complicated issue, I hope that they get what they deserve. But other than those feelings, I kind of mind my own business. You know, I have my life to lead uh, kind of in this, this other group. And so in doing that, I'm in, in a way, I'm perpetuating a sort of a status quo. This is the way things are. It's just the way things are. Because if you want real change, there's got to be a person or a group that has both the will and the power to make that change. So in other words, they have to have both the desire and the ability. And you know, in, in my little worldview, you've got the uh, oppressors who obviously lack the will you know, to change anything. Everything's working pretty well for them. And then you've got the oppressed who lack the power 
to do anything about it. And then you've got myself who's sort of, because I've pulled back, I, I feel like I really lack both. And because of that, not much changes. And I think you guys see, the, you know, if you look at things over time, you know, we have different um, things that happen in society, whether it's Occupy Wall Street, or like I said, what happened in, is happening in Baltimore, or, or anything that for you feels like a sense of some injustice happening. And you ask yourself, you know, well, what actually changes as a result of those things? You know, it, it sort of runs through the news cycle, but what changes? And I think a lot of times the answer is not much. And so what I want to do today is just spend a few minutes talking about how Jesus sort of interacted with this issue, because it, it certainly existed in his day, because it's, it's been around a very long time, and maybe see if there are things that we can learn from his approach that would maybe impact our own. So I'm going to read from Luke um, chapter 18. You, if you have a Bible or a phone or whatever, you can pull that out, starting with verse 35. I'm going to, I'm going to pray first, and then I'm going to read. Father, we thank you for uh, your stories to us. We thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you for the truth and the salvation that is contained in it, especially in the words and the actions of Jesus Christ. Help us please to understand that story and that message well. Help whatever today is edifying and true, Help that sink in and take root. And whatever is in error, whatever is misunderstood, whatever is poorly said, help that just wash away so that what we are left with is something that we can have confidence in as we uh, apply it uh, to our lives. In your son's name we ask this. Amen. Okay, so Luke chapter 18, verse 35 to 43, to the end of the chapter, I'll read. As he, meaning Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Okay, so speaking of stories, this is a great story. This is, in, in, kind of in essence, a three-character play. There is a poor man, there is the crowd, and there is Jesus. Now, the poor man uh, is basically, he's a beggar. You know, he has no resources, and he's blind. And not only is he blind, but he's being sort of made invisible by the crowd, who sort of shuns him to the side. So you see how if there's an imbalance of power, there's already sort of a, just a sense of oppressive you know, behavior that happens. In desperation, this blind man calls out to Jesus, and he really just calls right through the crowd. Um, that is an amazing, to me, act of faith right there, because if you think about it, everybody around him, uh, everybody ignores him. Everybody sort of shuns him. Everybody kind of has a, thinks he should kind of keep in his place. Nobody's helping him, 
And yet he calls out in the hope that this, this stranger, this visitor to the town, actually will have some, some care, some desire to help him. His faith escalates when Jesus kind of brings him forward because Jesus asks him a question, very, very direct question. What do you want me to do? And the man's response is just as direct. You know, he says, in essence, give me my sight. Give it back to me. Um, if you were to, you know, wait till December, find my kids, ask any one of them, what do you want for Christmas? They would say things like, you know, uh, books, Legos, toys, um, video games, uh, model kits, that kind of thing. So you get an answer. It's not terribly specific. And that's because they know that you lack either the will or the power to sort of get them what they want. You know, if you're one of their little friends, you, you certainly want them to have it, but you have no power to do that. And if maybe you're an older person, right, you might have the power to get them anything they want, but you certainly don't want to be buying presents for, you know, some other guy's kids. And so they sort of instinctively know this. When Beth or I say, what do you guys want for Christmas, we start getting SKUs, you know, and website URLs. And we get uh, emails that have wish list links in them and aisle numbers at Toys R Us and what shelf it's on. And uh, very, very specific because they, they know what they need and they have complete faith that we have the, both the will and the power to give it to them. And that's how the blind man is sort of responding to Jesus he, by calling out to him and then by answering him so directly He's basically acknowledging, he's, he's got this faith that says, not only do I believe that you have the will to help me, I think you have the power to heal me. And if you think about it, that's like, that's like a wonderful sort of affirmation of why we pray. And when we pray, what an act of faith that is. is first, just the prayer itself is saying, I, I believe there's somebody that wants to help me. And when we are very direct in what is bothering us, you know, uh, not a list of demands, but we're just, we just right from our heart say what it is that, that is the problem. That is an act of faith again because you're saying, I believe you have the power to fix this. That's why I'm going to tell you exactly what's, what's upsetting me. Now, the, the irony is that the blind man is the only one in the story that actually sees Jesus. You know, the crowd looks and sees Jesus of Nazareth. That's how they describe him. He's a guy from a place. The blind man sees the son of David. He sees his Lord, he calls him, and he sees a man that has the power to heal him. So you've got the second character is the crowd. The crowd is very interesting to me because they, they're following Jesus, and they are listening to him, and they're even obeying him, you know, when he makes a command. But they also sense that they have this role. You know, their role is sort of a gatekeeper. They, they can answer the question, um, who is worthy to engage with Jesus? And uh, I think they have an answer for the blind man. They actually have the power to help him, right? They can't heal his blindness, but they can certainly make him more comfortable. But they're not doing that because they, they lack the will to do that. Uh, what they should probably be doing, they should be putting him on a, you know, a mat and bringing him to Jesus just the way that the, the friends did for the guy on the stretcher when they lowered him to the roof in um, Luke chapter 5. They should do that. But they don't because they don't really see the blind man as, as sort of in their community. He's, he's kind of separate and apart. And so instead what they do, whether it's intentional or not, is they separate him from Jesus. And they do this by physically standing in front of him and telling him to sort of hush up. 
to know his place. And so they're, they're, they're perpetuating the status quo and they're perpetuating this oppressive circumstance that the blind man sort of finds himself in. That doesn't mean they're all bad, right? Uh, when they see the blind man healed, they're very happy, you know, and they offer praise. Because even though they don't want to have anything to do with him personally, they're not heartless. You know, they, they celebrate this good thing that's done. And that, that, that really rings true for me because, I mean, I know that there are people in this world that um, are kind of in the same desperate need. I am more comfortable when those people are sort of made invisible to me. I don't, it, part of it's because I'm not sure how to help and part of it's because I don't know that I want to help. So between the two, I, if I can define them sort of out of my circle, out of my, you know, sort of field of vision or my community, it just makes my life easier. But I'm also not a heartless monster. You know, if they're helped, if I see that happen, or if I can, you know, throw a little help their way, that's terrific. And I offer praise for that. Jesus has a completely different reaction, you know, than I or the crowd would in that. Jesus will not accept the status quo. He will absolutely uh, address this man's issues head on. And he, and he does it in kind of two levels. Right? The first thing he does is he heals the man of his blindness. And in doing that, there's two times in this story where Jesus sort of reveals himself as something more than a traveling preacher, but as the son of God, as the Messiah. And this is the first time. I mean, he, he heals him. This is the creational restoration that the Old Testament promised and that Jesus kind of affirmed at the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4. Uh, it's happening right here in front of everybody. But he doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He sees that there's this other need, and he invites the man into community. In fact, he commands it. He, he commands that the man be brought in the midst of uh, he and the crowd. The crowd of followers would probably rather kind of experience Jesus on their own terms and uh, exclude people that they consider either unworthy or unfit or, you know, not quite ready for prime time. But Jesus doesn't. He heals the guy right there on two levels, and it says it in verse 43. If you look, it says, uh, the man recovered his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God. So this love that Jesus shows is transformational. You see, it, it brings joy not just to the blind man, but to the in, in the entire crowd, because they all end up praising God, and they all end up worshiping him. So it's a wonderful story. Uh, in some ways, it's perfect and complete. But I actually think it's only half the story. I think when Luke wrote it, he had a vision for a little bit bigger story. And I think a thousand years later, some guy stuck a chapter break in here because that's where the page kind of ended. Um, and so what I want us to do for right now is just you know, grab a pencil and just kind of mentally pencil out chapter 19 and read this all together. If you're looking it out on a phone, you can use a dry erase marker to pencil it out. But I want us to do uh, Luke 19, 1 to 8 and see how the story ends. So Luke 19 verse 1 says, he, meaning Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was very rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was so small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Okay, so this is kind of a second three-character play. It's a bit of a mirror image of the first one. So now we're on the other side of Jericho. It says in the first one he's passing through. By the time he meets Zacchaeus, he is, he is on the other side. That's why there's trees big enough to climb. He's outside the city walls. So we're, on, we're kind of on the other side of Jericho now. This time we have a rich man instead of a poor man, but we still got the crowd. We still got Jesus. A rich man, obviously we know his name is Zacchaeus. So instead of having a poor man who begs from the crowd, we've got a rich man who steals from him, from them. He's a tax collector. That would mean he would have great authority and power over the town. Uh, taxes in those days in Judea would be very high. We would, we would probably consider them like punitive, like California high. Um, and the purpose of that was to collect revenue that would pay for the peace that Rome was providing. Uh, and that, that peace, the cost of that was typically borne mostly by provinces that they had conquered, like Judea. So um, Zacchaeus kind of steps into this system. And he does what, what you know, most people would do. He works the system to his advantage. He can collect the taxes that he's required to by Rome. He can collect a little extra that sort of pays his way. And if he's really good at it, he can, he can make a lot of money doing this. And Rome, while it's not technically legal, it's not illegal either. Because Rome's attitude basically is as long as you're delivering the taxes that are required and you're not doing it in a way that's so abusive that everything breaks down, you're good. And so Zacchaeus is good enough to work the balance just right. So again, imbalance of power kind of leads almost inevitably, like night follows day, to oppressive behavior. What Zacchaeus and the blind man do have in common, they both want to see Jesus and they both can't. Right? So Zacchaeus is blocked by a crowd. What the crowd should be doing, what would be typical in that day, is they would sort of part and they would just allow him to pass through. He wouldn't have to say a word. He's very different from most people in that city. He's clean. You know, he's wearing nice clothes. And the idea is you don't rub up against kind of the unwashed masses. So you, you make a separate place, a place of honor in front to visit or get to know the honored guest. And they don't do that for him. So it's kind of an insult that they're, it's kind of a little bit abusive what they're doing in, for that time and place. And so he does something that's a little bit desperate. He, he climbs a tree. And that's unusual. Um, I, I can relate more and more to the story as I get older that, you know, climbing a tree, is, that's, that's hard, it's dangerous um, at a certain age, but he does it. And he does it because, you know, just like the blind man was willing to shout through the crowd to get to Jesus, Zacchaeus is basically willing to climb above their heads to do it. Now, the crowd, they, they know exactly what Zacchaeus is. Uh, they have no interest, understandably, they have no interest in having fellowship with someone who is actively hurting them. And so what they have for him is judgment. You know, he is one of those bad guys that you hear on the news. It's not just typical run-of-the-mill oppression. And so they exclude him from both their little community and from Jesus, who they're following around. And if you think about it, like if they had real faith, especially after they saw the transformation they saw with the blind man, the physical, especially transformation, you would think that they would grab Zacchaeus by the collar and sort of drag him out to Jesus and be like, okay, fix this one for us, you know, but they don't. It's not in their minds to fix 
Zacchaeus, right? What's in their minds is that oppressors de deserve our scorn. It's just like in the fairy tale. You know, what we learn is, is that the right resolution is to see the oppressor crushed, not, not fixed. Uh, it, you know, this reminds me kind of of Occupy Wall Street a few years ago. Occupy Wall Street, whether you agree or disagree, doesn't really matter. The point was that there was a group that said, hey, if you want to support the 99%, the way you do that is you help bring down the 1%. Um, so it's like there's a winner and there's a loser in this struggle. And the crowd kind of sees, sees it that way with Zacchaeus. So the irony here, again, is that it's the crowd's behavior in sort of excluding him and sort of like building this wall. They are perpetuating their own problem, right, because they're standing between Zacchaeus and Jesus because Jesus is the only person in the story that has both the will and the power to not only heal Zacchaeus but to change the lives of every single person in that town through, you know, good tax reform. But instead... The crowd's kind of following him, and they're, they're actually the obstacle to any real change. Thankfully, Jesus, just as in the first half of the story, just does not accept this, right? He's like, I do not accept the status quo. I do not accept these terms that say, you can have me this way. He's like, we're going to bring Zacchaeus into this. And when he does this, it's really the second revelation in this story of Jesus Christ as a son of God and Messiah, something much more than just a traveling prophet, because he offers Zacchaeus this invitation. It's completely undeserved, you know, unmerited, and he does it while Zacchaeus is uh, right in the midst of his sin. You know, he's done, he's done nothing to reform. And it's actually a, a really embarrassing breach of etiquette for Jesus, because in this day and age, you, you just don't invite yourself over to somebody's house. It's hard to do today, but sometimes we'll do it if we know the person well enough. But in that day, you never did it because it would be insulting, and it would look, make you look silly. So you didn't do it. But Jesus does it, and he does it because he knows if I sit and wait for Zacchaeus to choose me, it's never going to happen. So he just does what he has to. He chooses Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus deserves judgment. You know, that's clear. The crowd's right about that. He's a sinner, and the crowd is laying this judgment on him sort of in their behavior. But Jesus offers an invitation instead. That invitation actually has a, has a price, right? Because the crowd is, is very unhappy with Zacchaeus, very unhappy with his behavior, and they're showing him that anger. You remember when Jesus healed the blind man, the crowd's behavior turned to praise, right? Because they're like, well, this is a good thing. That does not happen when, when he engages Zacchaeus. They don't praise this time. It says they grumble. You know, they're angry at what Jesus is doing. I, I'm sure it feels a little bit like a betrayal when he sort of engages with the person that is hurting them. So what happens is that there, this anger that was originally focused on Zacchaeus kind of transfers, you know, to Jesus. That burden of judgment kind of shifts over to Jesus. And Jesus says nothing about it. He doesn't rebuke the crowd. He doesn't tell them they're wrong. He just absorbs it. And when he does that, when he does this combination of offering this invitation that is unearned, and then, and then absorbing this transfer of, of judgment from Zacchaeus to him, there's this immediate response from Zacchaeus, right? He is a new creation at that moment. You can see it uh, first with a change of heart, right? He expresses joy immediately at this invitation. And then you see it with a change of behavior that follows. He repents, right? He wants to do things very differently. He wants to turn 180 degrees from where he was. 
So it's Jesus' sacrificial gift to him that sort of elicits a sacrificial gift of, of Zacchaeus's by restoring what he had stolen. And it's clear from the story that Zacchaeus is not doing this to earn Jesus' invitation or attention or favor. He's got it. It's, already, it's locked in. He's doing it because it's just a natural response to what Jesus did for him. That's what he wants to do. So it just proves again that there's this love that Jesus extends that is truly transformational. It changes Zacchaeus at his core, and it frees the entire town. You know, they get their tax reform. Even in the midst of their grumbling, they still get that blessing. And I think this whole picture of how Jesus handles the oppressor is so much better than our reality, right? Because our reality that what we talked about is oppressors just kind of keep oppressing. Nobody really has the ability to stop it. But it's also so much better than our fairy tales, which say oppressors, oppressors get crushed, right? Jesus' vision is that oppressors get redeemed. And in his doing, the oppressor becomes like a fountain to that community that he's been adopted into. So in, in the telling of the story the way Luke has it laid out, Jericho is um, a city that is situated really between two very different stories. Right? There's the, there's the story of the powerless and there's the story of the powerful on the other side, uh, oppressed and oppressor. And in the midst of this, there's a crowd that tends to really reject both, to see both of those stories as outside of themselves. And they see themselves as sort of set apart from either. And then finally you have Jesus that comes in and insists on drawing everybody together. He draws both those sides to him. And the reason he does that is because he knows better than anybody that the only hope that those sides have for any healing, any restoration, is going to be in community with him. And so that's what has to happen. In a, in a sense, um, that picture is, is in some ways similar to where we are with our new building, right? Because we're building this new building, and it is going to be situated kind of between two very different stories. Uh, whether you look kind of north or south of, of the building and the communities, there's, there's one community that's maybe a little more powerful, and there's one that's maybe a little bit more powerless. Uh, we had an opportunity to build in a different place where the Alpine shop is, where we would be very safely ensconced kind of in the heart of Kirkwood, where we could still do wonderful things to help people who are poor or oppressed in other communities and do it from a, you know, maybe from a distance, but it could be done. But Jesus uh, and God pushed us really to the margin with the, with the new building that really was kind of like really handed to us. Um, and it's from this new location, this new place that we had to sort of like get our heads wrapped around that we have an opportunity to not just offer aid and support, which are terrific, but to off also offer an, an actual invitation. And the invitation is for uh, people from, you know, both sides of the power equation to worship in kind of one extended community and that we would all worship and glorify God in that way together. Um, now, this can make me nervous. It makes me a little nervous. Change makes me nervous. Um, because I know that in that extended community, there's going to be all kinds of new dynamics. One example, there's going to be people that we would invite in that are not going to have the resources to pay for all of our new stuff, right? And so, if anything, it could be the opposite. 
right? They could actually add financial burden to Green Tree. But I think, you know, I, uh, and most people are way ahead of me on this, th that's okay. You know, because there's other people, right, in this church that will come to this church that, that Jesus has called down out of a tree. And these people have the resources, some of us have the resources that we can pick up that slack. And we're promised in God's word that it's going to bring us joy to do so. So it's, it's nothing to be afraid or, or nervous about. Um, in fact, it's, it's really a reason to celebrate because this is the, one of the great reasons for us to see ourselves as one community. Because if we see ourselves as one community instead of kind of us versus these others or us distant from these others, then when we're called to kind of make sacrifice, we're not sacrificing for a cause anymore. We're really sacrificing for our friends. And when that happens, I think, you know, I certainly will suddenly find that I do have the will and I do have the power uh, to make a difference. Now, where does that come from? Well, the power comes only from the sacrificial gift that Jesus Christ made. That is the only place where we said this healing and restoration are possible. So it starts there. The will really comes from the Holy Spirit who enters your heart, enters my heart, and expands it in a way that you're suddenly more comfortable expanding your sense of community and your definition of neighbor. Now, I say all this um, as if it's something that I've, you know, thought all along, but it's not. I'm, 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 if anything, the worst person to talk about this because I'm so far behind the curve on sort of thinking about these issues. There's, there's a lot more people um, that could do a much better job, but it's, it's kind of what, we, what the passage says. Uh, and so you might ask, is it a little pie in the sky? And I would say, yes. Yes, it is. It is because it's different than what we're used to. It sounds, you know, unusual. It sounds a little too good to be true. It sounds like it's going to be hard. It sounds like it might be impossible. Uh, but Jesus kind of is continually telling us the things that we see and call impossible, he looks at and says are imperative. And in this case, you know, he's sort of commanding uh, that this is the way that we follow. It also tells me that, you know, again, I have to be reminded of this constantly, that Jesus has this vision that is so much more radical, you know, so much more wonderful, and so much more sort of uh, inclusive than anything that I or any of his other followers could come up with. A couple of weeks ago, um, Tom debuted the new church logo an acorn, and uh, he talked about all the symbolism in it, that it represents a seed, that it represents new beginnings, that uh, there's brokenness that's shown, that it is held together by the cross. When I saw it, I thought maybe it's telling us we're all nuts. Um, but it also, I think, has another meaning kind of in the context of what I'm talking about today. You know, when you look at that acorn, one of the words that might come to your mind, you know, with respect to green tree is potential. Um, I, I kind of pray for that for myself and for us that we, would, that we would feel the reality of that potential. Let me pray for us. Lord, I confess that uh, in my heart I am very often closer to the crowd than I wish were true or that I'd like to admit. Um, I am very often content to follow you but also offer, you know, judgment or indifference to people that are kind of outside the circle that I've drawn for myself. Uh, before, before the events, you know, around St. Louis that have caused unrest, that ca have caused us to ask questions, 
um, because of what's happened in Baltimore, because of things that happened in Ferguson, before all these conversations started, before all of that, you moved your church uh, from the Alpine shop to uh, the, the border between these two communities. And so, Lord, I, I thank you for your providence in that. I thank you for putting us in a place where real change on a personal level is possible. Um, I pray that you will supply us with everything that we need, um, as you have so far for everybody that you've invited into community with yourself. And as we continue down this journey, I would ask, Lord, that you would help me to be, help all of us to just be very sensitive. Um, help us to understand that while we might think of ourselves as sort of a neutral, distant party in some of these struggles between the powerful and the powerless, or however you want to define these groups, that others might see that differently. And uh, in some ways, they might be right. And so, Lord, open our eyes to see it the way others might see it, and open our hearts to kind of feel it the way others would. And finally, Lord, I would just ask that in the next uh, minute or so, as we just kind of sit silently, I would ask that you would plant a vision in each of our minds for your church, not necessarily the vision that's been described, uh, but a better one, the, the absolutely true one, what you would have us do. I would ask that you would give that to each of us. I would ask also that you would give us the desire of our hearts. Amen. <laughs>